Hey everybody, Jeremy Markovich here. Two quick notes before we get going. First, this podcast has a new home. It's now part of the North Carolina Rabbit Hole, which you can find at ncrabbithole.com. There you can check out previous episodes of Away Message. You can find any new episodes that we're putting out. And if you like this podcast, I think, no guarantees, but I think you will like my weekly newsletter. It is about weird North Carolina stuff. Comes out every Thursday. It is free if you want it to be. And you can sign up at ncrabbithole.com. Second, this episode was produced during my time at Our State Magazine. Now, I happen to think that most of it still holds up, but some of the promo codes and websites that I mention may no longer work. Okay, here's the show. Tonight, we are going to hear a recording, a recording that had been lost for decades. And to understand why it's a big deal, you have to go back in time, back to the year 1962. What you're hearing is not from 1962. It's from present day, but it's from a place that still pretty much looks like it did back then an old high school gymnasium in the city of Rocky Mount, about an hour east of Raleigh. On this night, a choir is warming up, people are beginning to file in. Some of them, like Herbert Tillman and I, are wearing suits. Hey, buddy. How are you? I'm in suit, huh? Yeah, I know, right? We're both wearing suits now. Yeah, man, I tell you. And we are all here to reenact something that happened in this very place 55 years ago. Does it feel like it was? I mean, kind of the... Yeah, because they got it got it all fixed up uh, the same way and you know we thought that uh, we thought that this was big place <laughs> but this was big for Rocky Mount. Herbert if you're wondering is supposed to be one of the reenactors but we're only a few minutes away from the start and nobody's really given him any instructions. So you know what you're doing now? No not yet. <laughs> In fact when I first went to Herbert's house a few hours earlier Come on in. He told me the same thing. What is your job going to be tonight? I'm not exactly sure they wanted me to play a part as Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. That's a big part. That's about the biggest part you can get. Okay, so the thing we're reenacting is a speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave in Rocky Mount back in 1962. But let's be honest, Herbert doesn't really look like Dr. King. I mean, he looks good for his age, but he's in his 70s, and Dr. King was 33 at the time. But for what he lacks in resemblance, he more than makes up for in experience. Because back when Herbert was 17, he was in that very gymnasium when Dr. King spoke. I was there. I was there. I wouldn't have missed it for nothing in the world. What's it like when he when he comes out? <laughs> Amen. When Martin Luther King walks out on the stage and everybody was just looking to get a glimpse of him and it was like, where's, 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 there's it, you know, Martin Luther King. And everybody just bust out in joy and jubilation. Oh, oh. Mm. Back then, Rocky Mount schools were segregated 
and Dr. King spoke in the gym at Booker T. Washington High School, where the black students went. He'd been invited by a local reverend to talk about voting rights, but over the course of 55 minutes, Dr. King delivers an electrifying speech that's part sermon, part civil rights address, and part pep rally. And the 1,800 people that are smushed into this gym, they are eating it up. They actually held on to every sentence that he was saying. Every time that he finished a sentence, it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. After it's over, everybody leaves, energized. And then nine months later... comes the March on Washington. 200,000 people converge on the nation's capital to rally for civil rights. And back in Rocky Mount, people are watching on TV. There's a great swell of cheers to welcome Martin Luther King to the speaker's podium, a man who stands as a symbol of all they are fighting for. And as he starts speaking, Dr. King uses this phrase, a phrase that's now known worldwide, a phrase that the country was hearing for the first time, but a phrase that Herbert remembered hearing in that small gym nine months before. I have a dream. I mean, it got the applause and everything, but it wasn't until after, you know, he went to Washington, D.C., that you realize, you know, I believe I heard some of that. <laughs> and people in Rocky Mount were like, huh, that's interesting. You know, it's about like anything else. You know, you talk about it amongst yourselves, and and then it just kind of fades away. Nobody else mentioned it again. And that was it. For a long time, people in Rocky Mount remembered the broad outlines of what Dr. King had said. But time marched on. They got older. The speech became one of hundreds of speeches that Dr. King gave during his lifetime in cities big and small. A plaque commemorating that day went up in the gymnasium. But other than that, it just sort of blended into the background. Until one day... A few years ago, when someone made a discovery, a lost recording of that speech in Rocky Mount, missing for decades, that would tell us something we didn't know about one of the most important men and one of the most famous quotes in American history. And tonight, we are all back in that same little gymnasium to see what happens when that recording is played and those words come back to life. From Our State Magazine, this is Away Message, a podcast about what you find in hard-to-find places. I'm Jeremy Markovich. So if you wanted to know what Dr. King said during the speech in Rocky Mount back in 1962... There was a way to figure it out. So, so this is the thing when people come in, you say, like, I want to I want to find the speech or I want to know what he said. This is what you would hand them. Yes. There's a thin red book up in the stacks at Braswell Memorial Library in Rocky Mount. One of the librarians, a woman named Tracy Thompson, helped me find it. Inside, there's a transcript of the whole speech, as well as a few letters, a news article and a picture. And the great thing about the picture is that uh, that the Rocky Mount Telegram took is you can see the reel-to-reel equipment sitting in front of him on the podium as he's speaking. So if you looked at the picture, you knew somebody, you could just, you would tell right away that somebody had been recording it. Exactly. And of course, since we had the transcription for a long time, we, we knew there was a reel out there, but it's whereabouts had become fuzzy over the years. Except for one day, 
A couple of years ago, someone at the offices of the local school district was cleaning out a closet, and they found something and gave it to the library. I came back from vacation, and the reel-to-reel tape was, uh, the original was sitting on my desk, and it said, um, MLK speech, do not erase. And I did not know what to do with it. Tracy didn't have the equipment to play it, so the tape sat on a shelf at the library until she got a call from this guy. Jason Miller, a professor of English at North Carolina State University. Now, Dr. Miller had long been studying the work of the African-American poet Langston Hughes. And my most recent research project was connecting his many poems about dreams to the speeches of Martin Luther King. And he starts wondering, where did this phrase, I have a dream, where did it come from? So Dr. Miller starts poking around and finds out that Martin Luther King may have said it in Rocky Mount. And then he hears there's a transcript. And when I heard that a transcript was available within three seconds, my mind said, there's got to be audio somewhere. Where is it? So I spent about the next six weeks looking, scouring, tracking down a number of places. And lo and behold, he calls up the library in Rocky Mountain. Tracy's like, as a matter of fact, I happen to have that tape you're looking for. He got very excited and was like, you have the original, really? And he said, I'm in Raleigh. I can come right now. Are you going to be there in an hour? I said, yeah, come on down. So he jumped in his car and drove right over here to, to see it. Was he like sprinting up the stairs to, to, to like, like bursting through the door to come to come get this tape? Yes, he was all but vibrating with excitement. <laughs> <laughs> now, in many ways, it's amazing that this tape still exists at all. It reportedly had sat in an attic for about 38 years. Because if someone had realized how important it was and had given it to the library, say, 30 or more years ago, it would have ended up in the basement. When the flood of Hurricane Floyd in 1999 came and the flood happened, the basement of the old library was flooded. I can only say thank goodness that the Martin Luther King Real to Real tape was not donated to the library until we built our new building on high ground. So now Dr. Miller has the tape, but the reel itself is rusty and who knows if it's even usable. So he calls up one of the nation's foremost audio experts and says, you know, I have this tape of Martin Luther King speaking in North Carolina. And the guy tells him, well, just put that in the mail and then I'll get to it in two or three weeks and then send the digitized copy back to you. And I said, you don't understand. This is the first time he ever used the iconic phrase, I have a dream. And he replied to me, can you come Sunday? Two days later, he takes the tape to the audio expert. They put it in a machine and push play. It is a great pleasure to be in this section of the state of North Carolina. I've been in this state many, many times. And it's all there. And to all of the officers and members of the Rocky Mount Voters and Improvement League. How many times do you think you've listened to this speech beginning to end? I think I've probably listened to this speech over 75 times. But the first time he listens, he realizes this is not just a regular speech. It's the only time anywhere that Dr. King used his three greatest endings altogether. In fact, it's his greatest hits. He used the iconic phrase, how long, not long? How long do we have to struggle in order to get those rights which are basic, God-given rights, deep down in the constitution of this nation? And I can only say to you tonight, not long. <laughs> which three years later would become the seminal statement he made at the final march on Selma in 1965. He then used, I have a dream for the first time. My friends of Rocky Mount, 
dream tonight. It is a dream rooted deeply in the American dream. And then he followed it with Let Freedom Ring, a passage he took almost verbatim from a man named Archibald Carey. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride. Yes. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. So nowhere else does Dr. King lay out his greatest hits all in one place. But that phrase, I have a dream, you can hear on the tape. It gets a huge response. So let me play a little bit of the devil's advocate. What does it matter, really, that he said it first in Rocky Mount, like, other than bragging rights? Like, what, what, is this, what does this mean that he said it there other than that's just the first time that he said it? What's so important about this speech, Jeremy, is that it shows the development of the idea itself. Because the phrase, I have a dream, has its roots in a Langston Hughes poem entitled, I Dream a World. Dr. King reworked some of its lines. By taking the words, I dream have and treating them like a shell game where you can simply move the pieces back and forth he could create a new phrase that would echo the ideas of the american dream politics but also prophecy and this is the first moment where dr king realizes that poetry and prophecy and politics can be the three threads that come together for this metaphor the poetry is crucial poetry is where memory breathes So the unforgettability of that phrase goes back to what he's taking from Langston Hughes. And without that, then we always just have words that come to us and leave as soon as they appear. But with metaphor and with poetry, we have something that remains. And on the recording, you hear it all. The pacing, the rhythm, the passion in Dr. King's voice, his hands pounding on the podium. All things you can't get from just a transcript. It's the difference between holding sheet music in your hand and sitting in the crowd at the symphony. In fact, listening to the ending, the last lines that brought everybody to their feet, gave me goosebumps. This speech isn't just about words or poetry. It's about action. And that brings us to the other part of this story, about what happened in Rocky Mount after Dr. King spoke, and about what happened on a night 55 years later when people gathered in the same gymnasium to listen to Dr. King speak all over again. That part of the story, when we come back. Praise the Lord. Could we all stand and hold hands together as one family? This is Away Message. I'm Jeremy Markovich, and we're inside of the gymnasium in Rocky Mount where Dr. Martin Luther King first used the words, I have a dream, in a speech. A few years ago, a lost recording of that speech turned up, and tonight, the people in this gym are going to hear it. Some for the first time, and others for the first time since Dr. King actually spoke here 
55 years ago. There are a few hundred people here, all sitting on seats on the hardwood floor. Some of them are kids who all seem to know one thing about Dr. King. Um, I know that Martin Luther King had a dream, and it is still alive today. That he had a dream, and then that dream came true. He made a speech. He made a speech. What do you know about the speech he made? I have a dream speech. Yeah. Just I have a dream. And some, like Rosa Andrews Brody, were there the first time around. The Lord just put me at his place at that time. Because I didn't even come with, oh my goodness, uh, Dr. King is coming, and he's going to be speaking, and, and you know he's going to light up the whole world. Now we said we ain't got nothing to do this afternoon. We're going to go over there and hear this man talk. Oh, I'm just going to go, and, and there's a speech happening. You want to go? Yeah, I, I guess I'll go. It's kind of like, like that. Yeah. But this is what it has turned into, and I was privileged to have been among those who came. For other people, the visit by Dr. King changed the course of their lives. Uh, Martin Luther King was a big influence on my becoming a pastor. That is Dr. Tolokun Omokunde. Pastor of Timothy Darling Presbyterian Church in Oxford, North Carolina. He was 15 years old on the day that Dr. King came to Rocky Mount. Omokunde was wearing a new blue suit. Tied my own tie for the first time. My uncle taught me how to tie a Windsor knot. My grandmama washed and starched my underwear and with olive oil on my hair. And he and another student are led back to see Dr. King for a private meeting. That hour was, like, mesmerizing. He had coffee. I had a Coca-Cola, short Coca-Cola. They talk about civil disobedience and peaceful protest. But the next night really sealed the deal when Dr. King was speaking at another church in town and recognizes him. King asked me to come in the, in the room where the preachers were. And that, that was phenomenal. I was like 15 years old, and I was hanging out with preachers, and uh, with uh, big-time preachers, Dr. King and his associates and everything. So that set Tolokun Omokunde down the path to becoming a pastor. But that big speech at the gymnasium, that inspired him in a different way. We're going to break down the bars of segregation. We must continue to register and vote in large numbers. There was a pulse of the crowd when you walked in the room. It was church and it was civic at the same time. The glory of the Lord will be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream tonight. When you start speaking, it's call and response, you know, African call and response. They uh, said, uh, you know, I, I have a dream, man. They said, come on, come on, Doc. From every mountainside, let freedom ring. <laughs> so you're in this room, he gives this electrifying speech, mm-hmm. and, then, uh, and then it's over. So how are you feeling when you're walking out of there, and how is the town feeling in the days that follow after, after, after hearing all this? In the days that followed, people wanted to vote. In the days that followed, people wanted to uh, go and press uh, for desegregation. In the days that followed, people would no longer accept mediocrity. In the days that followed, I wanted to be a better student. In the days that followed, I I saw myself with a new destiny uh, of going to Johnson C. Smith University, uh, of of, uh, of majoring in philosophy. I saw myself as being a little bit more important. But most of all, I saw myself as being someone who had to contribute back to society. 
is it a stretch to say that, that something about Rocky Mount changed? Well, before the speech, Rocky Mount was, you don't bother me, I won't bother you, uh, in terms of black and white situation. Afterwards, people sought to kind of unify, and it was bad business to be racist. That was bound to happen one day sooner or later anyway. But I think King uh, brought it and saw that we, are, we have to all live together and perish. Herbert Tillman was also there that day, and the change for him was more gradual. It inspired me that if one man can make that big a difference, that all I have to do is just do what I think is right. You don't realize how prejudiced things are so much when you're going to school, when you, especially when you're in an all-black school, you know, because they're teaching you that you can be whatever you want to be. But just as soon as you get out and you look for a job, you find that it's, it's not that way. After high school, Herbert goes into the service for a few years, and when he gets out, he becomes one of the first black men hired at Burlington Mills in Rocky Mount. It's a low-level job, but he's good at it. They were sending white guys to me to, for me to teach them how to be supervisors. And after teaching about five or six of them, and they wind up making one of the ones that I taught how to be a supervisor, made him my supervisor. You know, naturally it didn't sit well with me. I mean, I wasn't mad, but uh, I did want an answer about it. So Herbert goes to his boss, and then his boss's boss, and so on, until he finally finds himself in the office of an executive at Burlington. And Herbert asks him this question. That if I'm smart enough and good enough to teach the white men how to be supervisors, why am I not qualified to be a supervisor? And his answer, and I, I, I've never forgot it, you know, because I don't know, I, I reckon I was really in, insulted, but uh, I never forgot his answer. And his answer was, well, tell me, I'm going to be honest with you. As much as I wouldn't mind doing it, the city of Rocky Mount is just not ready for that yet. That if I were to make you a supervisor, it would probably cause a riot right here in Rocky Mount. I never forgot it. And I told him, I said, well, I don't think I can, I can stay here. And he told me, he said, well, I put it to you this way. If you stay, you will be allowed to come to my office anytime that you wish. And anytime you see any indiscretion or anything uh, that's not right, you know, it's happening to any blacks in this company, you can come to me personally and tell me. Just leave whatever you're doing and come straight to my office and uh, I'll take care of it. And I said, no, well, that's, 
that's not what I'm I'm looking for. That that's basically just asking me to be a stoolie. I said I'm I'm just all I want is is equal opportunity. And he said, Well, Herbert, I I tell you this. He said, if there is a supervisor out there that's rubbing you wrong, he said, I'll find the supervisor tomorrow if you stay. I said, no, it's not about that. I said, that's not, that's not the problem. He said, well, you know, if you do decide to stay, I want you to know that in two or three years from now, it won't be too far down the road. We will hire a black supervisor, and you will, uh, you will be in in position to at least be in position to you know to be considered for that job. It sounded like he wanted to give you everything except for the thing that you were asking for. And I remember him saying, "If I give you that job, that would cause a race riot." And I basically told him, "I said, well, let's have the riot." That didn't scare me. Don't. Hold me back for something that I'm not guilty of. Don't hold me back because there are those with these negative racial attitudes. They can't change or can't seem to change. And so Herbert goes out and applies for another job at Abbott Laboratories, also in Rocky Mount. And during the interview, he speaks up. Colin, I don't want to go to a another place that's going to hold me back just based on the color of my skin. And he told me, he said, Mr. Tillman, I assure you that if you stay here, your skin color will have nothing to do with how high you go. That's all right. Yeah. Herbert gets the job, and he stays there and moves up through the company, and he makes more and more money, saves some, makes good investments with the rest, and was able to retire from Abbott at age 54. And in the two decades since then, he's been active in his church and in sports and local senior groups, but he's stayed. And he's seen how far things have come. My uncle, he was the first black policeman in in Rocky Mount, and when they put him on the police force, they wouldn't even let him arrest a white man. He couldn't arrest nobody but black people. If a white person did something wrong, he would basically have to get on his radio and called a station for them to send a white man so the white man could arrest the white man, but he was not allowed to do so. But eventually, his uncle became a captain on the police force. A black man became chief. The city council became a mix of black and white. And 10 years ago, when city leaders were looking to revitalize a historic part of town, they put more than $8 million into an African-American business district known as the Douglas Block. Now it's home to a theater and one of the most popular restaurants in town, where people of all races meet together. I don't see that kind of hatred that I used to see back in the 60s. I, I, I don't see it. Uh, and I'm not saying that there's not disagreements. I'm not saying that uh, uh, everybody don't always gel together, but I'm saying that that blatant type Anger, discrimination, racism, kind of thing that existed back then. Um, I don't see it in my face. I'll put it that way.
And so, 55 years after Martin Luther King delivered his original speech here in North Carolina, Herbert is back in that same gymnasium. There's some music, a few speakers talk about King's legacy and the need to continue his fight, and after about an hour of buildup, the lights darken. When the speech begins, everything stops. Everyone stops talking, stops looking at smartphones, stops moving. There's this screen where the words of the speech are displayed over pictures from the civil rights era, and everyone in the gym is staring straight ahead, listening. At one point, King makes a joke, and you can hear the punchline still lands. There are people nodding along with the words. When Dr. King calls, they respond. One woman in a pink shirt begins to cry, and at the end, at the part where he concludes with free at last, you can hear the applause on the tape and in real life. Everybody is up on their feet. As soon as it's over, I find Herbert. All right, buddy. All right, what'd you think? <laughs> Man, I tell you, I loved it. Turns out the organizers didn't need him to play the part of Dr. King after all. He's not upset about it, though. He's smiling. Seems light on his feet. And when you're going through that struggle that he's talking about and wind up and hear the words that he brought. Oh, it's awesome. I love it. I love it. I love it. You are, you are it energized you. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that, but I tell you, you know, something like that just gives you all the energy, you know, that, that you want because it really inspires you. If it don't inspire you, then, you know, hey, I, I don't know what to say about you. And then? Just like they did in this place 55 years ago, everybody streams out into the night, ready to take on whatever comes next. Away Message is written, edited, and produced by me, Jeremy Markovich, with production help from James Michkowski. Our digital director is Kimberly Simpson, and our editor-in-chief is Elizabeth Hudson. Additional music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. If you'd like to learn more about the speech, Dr. Miller has put up some excerpts of the recording, along with a transcript that has a bunch of footnotes that really explain a lot about the meaning and context behind what Dr. King is saying. It's fascinating stuff. He's also working on a documentary. I have put a link to all of that in the show notes for this episode. This podcast is a production of Our State Magazine, celebrating North Carolina for more than 80 years. If you are not a subscriber, head over to OurState.com, click on subscribe, use the promo code AWAY, and get $5 off a year subscription for you or for a gift. It's our thank you for listening to the show. And one more thing, if you really want to impress Herbert Tillman, you just need to be familiar with old technology. There's a lot of people that had their little 
little radio kind of things where they could uh, listen to the speech and, and was still working. Transistor radio. Yes, very good, okay. <laughs> That's very good for a young man, all right. <laughs> we are working on the next episode of Away Message right now, and we will talk to you again real soon.